I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Good morning and Merry Christmas to you and your family. This morning I'm joined by Bishop Robert Barron, the ninth bishop of the Diocese of Winona, Rochester, and the founder of Word on Fire, which I recommend to everyone. Bishop Barron, welcome. Thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Here at Christmas, would you mind starting us off with a message about Christmas and what it means to you? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. It's good to be with you and Merry Christmas to all the listeners today. You know, something the church fathers said over and over again was, God became man that man might become God. And it might seem a little peculiar at first, but it's based in the Bible, namely that God becomes one of us precisely to draw us into his life. So the Greek fathers talked about theosis in their language, but Thomas Aquinas picked it up in the West. He used the word deificatio, deification, that we become sharers in God's nature. God became one of us, that we might become sharers in his own life. And that, I think, is the deepest meaning of Christmas. It's the message of the incarnation. So not just a sort of a strange one-off, but something that's at the very heart of our human life, that God is not just a moral exemplar for us, but God is calling us into intimacy with himself. And that happens through the incarnation. And that's the message of Christmas. God becomes this little baby. God joins us in our weakness, our vulnerability, our finitude, that we might become sharers in his own nature. I always call it the marvelous humanism of Christianity. There's no humanism, ancient or modern, that holds out a higher ideal for human beings than Christianity. Because the ordinary goal of the Christian life is to become a sharer in God's nature. So the humanism of our tradition is grounded finally in this great feast of Christmas. In your own experience, how did you open up to God? Well, of course, I'm born and raised a Catholic, and so I was you know, brought up in the church and going to Mass, and my parents were very devout Catholics. An experience that I remember very vividly is I'm a kid of, what, four or five at the time, maybe, and simply watching my father 
at prayer on his knees at mass. You know, I thought of my father as the most powerful person in the world. And to see him humbly in the presence of a power greater than himself, that had a huge impact on me when I was a little kid. But then in a more refined way, when I was in high school, I discovered St. Thomas Aquinas. And though I was a believer in God, to be sure, but when I came across the arguments for God's existence, I realized that you could think about God in a very serious way, an intellectually serious way. And that beguiled my mind when I was a kid and led me to books and ideas and all that. And then it began to reach into deeper parts of my soul, reach my heart. But I'd say the witness of my parents, especially my dad, and then the emergence of Thomas Aquinas in my life when I was a teenager, those both had a huge impact on me. As you have grown in Christ, you created Word on Fire, which anybody can access in the world. What led you to that? It's a great, profound breakthrough in being able to share the gospel worldwide. You do it as well as anybody I know. I appreciate that. You know, I was a teacher at the seminary outside Chicago. So I had been sent for my doctoral studies to Paris, loved books, loved the life of the mind, got my doctorate, was able to travel through Europe, and I had all those great experiences. Came back, and I was a teacher for a number of years, taught courses, uh, began to write books. I was on the Catholic speaker circuit, you know, going around giving retreats and talks and so on. But it began to occur to me by the late 90s, so I've been teaching now for seven or eight years, that there was so much more we could do. I could spend the rest of my life, I thought, you know, writing books for a relatively small audience and giving talks to rooms of two or 300 people. But I said, why not do what Fulton Sheen did back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s? I mean, why not use the technology available to us? Now, when I started, it still was basically TV and radio and that sort of thing. So I went to WGN Radio in Chicago, the biggest radio station. And I said, just for fun, tell me how much would it cost to have a little sermon show? And they said to me, well, for $50,000, we'll put you on at 5.15 on Sunday morning. So I went to my parish and I said, you know, just that. I said, if you're willing to help me, I can get on the radio at 5.15. And God bless them, they did. They gave me the money. And that's how it started. It grew then to a website. And then I started recording a number of talks I've been giving. Those got on Catholic television and my profile, you know, grew a bit. And then we had a breakthrough with the Catholicism series, which was modeled after Kenneth Clark's Civilization, which is a show that impacted me when I was a kid. This great English art historian taking us all over the Western world and showing us the great works of art. I said, why not do something like that with Catholicism? So again, scraped together the money somehow, we did that. And that's then really what brought it to a different level. And then we began the podcasts and the YouTube and all that business. But it started with just my conviction that we should be doing more, that we could do more, that Fulton Sheen was the model, but we had kind of dropped the ball after Fulton Sheen. So that's what inspired me. Bishop Sheen made Christianity totally practical and totally relevant and did so with a sense of humor. He was a great showman. He had a certain genius. And part of it, you know, was he was very highly trained in Catholic philosophy and theology. He had the agrégé, which is this advanced degree in theology from Louvain University. So Sheen was a high-level academic, but he also had his finger on the pulse of the culture. He understood American culture. 
for example, he used a lot of psychology. He used a lot of Freud because he knew that Freud was sort of making his way into the culture. He engaged in a lot of polemics against communism, which was a major political theme of the day. So he combined a rich Catholic intellectual formation with a keen understanding of the culture. And as you say, I think the humor was very important for Sheen. The greatest comedians of the day, you know, Jackie Gleason and Milton Berle, admired his timing, his comic timing. So Sheen was able to pull that off in a rather extraordinary way. And at the time, there were, what, a handful of TV stations. And so if you get on television in those days, you were reaching much of the country. It's hard nowadays with the extraordinary range of opportunities to remember what it was like back then. Right. And there's a flip side to it because now, you know, we can be 24-7 all over the world and all these different platforms. Sheen had to rely on people coming at a particular time on the radio or TV to hear him. In a way, we're in a much better position than Sheen was in. You make the point that when we talk about the Christmas story, we look at Luke's account, the story really opens up by invoking two of the most powerful people in the world. It says, well, Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and when Caesar Augustus was king of the world, census was called. It never quite occurred to me until I read your work that I'd always seen that as kind of placing it historically, but it's also drawing a contrast that these two guys had secular power, but here comes this little baby who, in fact, will have far more power. There's no question about it. I mean, Luke and all the gospel writers were literary as well as theological geniuses, and the way he uses Quirinius and Augustus to kind of haunt your mind as you read that story. So these figures would have had all the things that we associate with worldly power. They had honor and prestige, and they had armies behind them, and they had a comfortable place to live and all of that. And then Luke tells this story of this little nothing couple making their way to this dusty outpost and the baby it can't even be born in the traveler's hostel, is born in a cave or a stable, is put in the place where animals eat, is wrapped up. In other words, has no power, no prestige, no honor yet. And I think the key to that story is at the end when the angel, who always inspires fear in the Bible, when an angel appears from another dimensional system, but then appearing with the single angel is an entire army of angels. And see, that's no accident that an army is associated with the baby king, which is far more powerful than the army associated with Quirinius or Caesar Augustus. And you know what I find extraordinary there is, here's a man writing this story, let's say around the year 80 or so of the first century, when Christians were a tiny, tiny minority in a handful of cities in the Eastern Mediterranean. And yet he was saying very clearly, this baby, this Messiah, is more powerful than Caesar. And at the time, I mean, it was an incredible thing to say, but yet it's true, isn't it? I mean, we're still here and Caesar's long gone. I mean, Christianity, those following the baby king, we're still a great world power 2,000 years later. The Caesars are long gone. And so the gospel writers, they got something. They understood something. I think here, even in our own time, you know, you and I lived through the fall of the Soviet Union. Who would have guessed when I was a teenager in the 70s and someone told me that the Soviet empire would collapse with barely a shot being fired and that the Pope would be a major player in it? That would be wild fantasy. That's what happened. And the Christmas story, you're quite right, is about that dynamic, that the true king and the true army are more powerful than the armies of the world.
from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Clist and I did a movie called Nine Days to Change the World about John Paul II going back. And it's astonishing the impact he has and the degree to which he suddenly arouses the Polish people. You're quite right, and that's it's marvelous. Your documentary and that whole story is marvelous, but it calls to mind the Stalin line, right? It was about Pius XII. How many divisions does the Pope have when the Pope critiqued him? Well, the successor of Pius XII brought down the successor of Stalin without a single division. But it speaks to spiritual power, which we've always known about. Spiritual power can change the whole world. There's a great line in the movie where George Weigel quotes Stalin and then says, you know, it turned out that the Pope had far more divisions than Stalin ever imagined. That's quite right. And that's signaled in the Christmas story when this invisible army See, in other words, don't sentimentalize the angels of Christmas. They're on every Christmas card, and we sentimentalize them. But they're not sentimental figures in the Bible. Angels are always ferocious figures. They're fearsome figures. And now you get an army of those together. That's what's associated with the baby king, which means the powers of the world should tremble. See, because at the heart of Christianity is a sort of taunt to worldly power, because we hold up the cross, which struck first century people as exceedingly strange that you would hold up the image of someone being tortured to death by Roman power. But that's the kind of delicious poetry of Christianity, is we hold that up as a sort of taunt to the world to say, well, we're not afraid of what you can do to us, because God's love is more powerful than anything that you have. And that's not just wishful thinking. You can see it in the John Paul story. What do you think most Christians miss from the celebration of Christmas? They miss the radicality and subversiveness of it, the two things we've been talking about. Because we sentimentalize it. That's the problem. It's Dickens. And now Dickens was a great figure and a great Christian. I don't want to be bad-mouthing Dickens, but we associate Christmas now with you know the um, Dickensian London, and we sort of romanticize it. But Christmas in the Bible 
is subversive and it's radical. God becomes one of us that we might become sharers in his nature. And God becomes one of us in order to lead a great spiritual army whose purpose is to conquer the world. And so when Jesus, the risen Christ, says, go forth and proclaim the gospel to all nations and to bring them under the lordship of Jesus. Well, that's not Whistling Dixie. I mean, that's a very powerful summons. And the lordship of Jesus means just that. that He wants all of life brought under his sovereignty. I think that's what people miss when it comes to Christmas. I always look back on this with amazement that here's this very small number of people who in their hearts are so passionately, deeply committed that within a century, they're a worldwide movement. You look at that and you think something mystical happened. Something happened. Well, you know, I rely there on N.T. Wright, the great biblical historian, because Wright said, prescind from religion for a minute, just from a purely historical standpoint, what is very hard to explain is the emergence of Christianity as a messianic movement. And what he meant was, at that time and place, the clearest sign possible that you were not the Messiah of Israel would be your death at the hands of Israel's enemies, because the Messiah was meant to be the king of the nations. And so if someone wanted to say, look, your guy is not it, all you'd have to do is say, look, the Romans put him to death. Well, Christianity didn't hide that. On the contrary, Paul says, that's all I preach is Christ and him crucified. But at the same time, they said, yeah, the one that Caesar crucified, he is the Messiah of God. And then to your point, it shows something happened. Even to explain the emergence of this movement, apart from the resurrection, it's very hard to explain it. It's the empty tomb. It's the moment of realizing that the effort of the establishment, both the Jewish establishment and the Roman political establishment, has failed. That Christ, in fact, is not dead. He was temporarily gone and is now back. Right. The most fundamental form of charismatic preaching, so-called, the kerygma being the basic good news, the basic form is Caesar killed them, God raised them. That's what the first preachers said. You killed them, your people killed them, God raised them. That's the kerygma, and that is a subversive sort of message. That's a very challenging message, which is why most of the first Christian preachers ended up in prison and put to death, because the powers that be understood that. They knew how radical this message was. Even Paul saying again and again, as he does, Jesus curios, Jesus is Lord, because Kaiser was curios, Caesar was Lord in that time and place. And so to say, no, not Caesar, but Jesus is Lord, that's why Paul was in prison a lot and why they eventually cut his head off, is they knew how subversive that was. We've lost a lot of that edginess, I'm afraid. Part of it is you have to have people who believe so deeply that they regard having their head cut off as a reasonable trade. It is, in that sense, in the early days, a religion of martyrs over and over again. Witnesses and the blood of the martyrs, the seed of Christians, as Tertullian said, and that's exactly how it worked. But see, it still works. When I was filming the Catholicism series, we were in Namogongo near Kampala, and that's where Charles Luanga and his companions were murdered in the late 1800s. And anyone watching that would have said, well, that's the end of Christianity. But now, every year on his feast day, June the 3rd, something like a million people converge on that spot. And when I was there filming, I was just sort of moved to quote Tertullian. I said, the blood of the martyrs is still the seed of Christians, and take a look. And then the camera panned out to this enormous crowd. So it's still true. still true. 
when you're at Mass and you take the Eucharist, the representation of Christ and the degree to which Christ is in you 2,000 years later, as experienced by well over a billion, 300 million people, is an astonishing statement of faith. Yeah. It's the distinctive mark of Catholic Christianity is we don't think of Jesus as simply an inspiring teacher or a distant historical figure. We eat him and we drink him. We take him into our bodies. The Church Fathers said that. It's the way we become immortalized. So preparing ourselves to live forever, well, we become immortalized through the Eucharist. So the, the kind of wonderful, gritty realism of our Eucharistic faith, that Jesus is really, truly, and substantially present, that matters a lot. Because otherwise, it's easy to think of him, make him a very abstract figure. But no, we eat him and we drink him. And in that process, there is a personal experience, it seems to me, that when you go, for example, in Rome to certain key places where there are martyrs, and you realize that these people, in a sense, were happy to be martyred. They were dying in the absolute faith of rebirth, and they felt that the people who weren't prepared to be martyred were much poorer and were not going to, in fact, be reborn. Yeah, and I think that's true in those days and true in our time. Think of a Maximilian Kolbe and the depth of the Holocaust in Auschwitz, but willingly gives his life to save someone else. That's someone who's living on a different plane. That's someone who's opened up a depth dimension to life. It's still true, the great martyrs, and that's still the source of the church's deepest life. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. What was it like to move from Los Angeles to Minnesota? 
it felt like coming home. I love LA. I'm from Chicago originally, and I was a priest there, and I was rector of the seminary there. Love Chicago, but I'm you know very used to the Midwest and Midwestern weather. I was sent to California to my infinite surprise. I was made an auxiliary bishop out in LA, and I was based in Santa Barbara, which is one of the loveliest places in the whole country. I loved it. Beautiful. But when I got the call, and that's how it happens in the church, no one ever talks to you. You've got no advance warning whatsoever. It's not discussed with you in any way. You just get a phone call out of the blue. And it was, you've been appointed the Bishop of Winona, Rochester, Minnesota. My first thought was, I've got to take out my Chicago winter coat again, which has been hanging up for six years in my closet. It felt like coming home. It felt like coming back to a culture I was very at home with. Given modern technology, do you find it, for all practical purposes, as easy to do Word on Fire from Winona or Rochester? We're moving our studio to Rochester, right near the Mayo Clinic. We're moving right downtown. We had it in Santa Barbara at the wonderful Santa Barbara Mission. We were on the grounds of the mission. We just picked up all the equipment, shipped it out here, and we rented a space, and we're building it out now as a studio. But see, to your point, people said to me, oh, you know, you were out in Hollywood, and wasn't that better for communication? And I said, well, first of all, I wasn't in Hollywood. I was two hours out in Santa Barbara. And secondly, I said, we had our own equipment and studio, and I can do it just as well from here as I could from there. So that doesn't make a lot of difference. How much of your time does it take? Because it's brilliantly done. Well, that's due to my team. One of my team members is right here next to me as I record this. We have about 60 people in Dallas, Chicago, now Rochester. They're the ones who are so good at the creative side of it and the tech side. I'm not very good at the tech side of it. I would say it takes about 10% of my time. I usually write a column every week. I do a commentary every week. We film sermons. I have a couple of podcast shows. So maybe it takes 10% of my time. But most of my time now, I'm the bishop of the diocese. So I'm going to, you know, meetings, doing liturgies. This morning at mass and then going for another mass later in the day. So that's my work. That's 90% of my work. And this is about 10%. I was very impressed. Your YouTube videos have been seen by over 90 million times. It's 120 million now, I think. Is it 120 million? Yeah. And my wife is one of the half million people who get your daily email reflections. And she literally has told me of several people who've come to her and who have been moved to convert to Catholicism by listening to your reflections. I mean, that's the whole raison d'etre. That's the entire reason we're doing this. So nothing makes me happier than that. I mean, I think it's very important because every generation has to operate within the world that they've discovered. I was really struck a couple of years ago, I was reading a novel about Paul and the Corinthians, and I hadn't realized it, but the Romans had created this amazing postal service. And one of the reasons you get all of Paul's letters is whether he's in Malta or wherever he is, he can literally write his dispatches and mail them. And so here is the secular Roman imperial mail carrying this subversive message all over the Mediterranean. That would eventually undermine Caesar. And that's been observed, you know, for a while. So I think Christopher Dawson makes that observation too, that at the moment when it was most needed, there was a political structure. Think of the Roman roads, as you say, the Roman postal system and relative peace. So we just finished all the awful civil wars with Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra and all that was over. And so there was a kind of a relative peace obtaining in the Roman world. And that enabled the message to get out. And Paul used the technology of his time, which was Roman roads and parchment and the postal system. So that's what every generation has to do. Can you talk about the Word on Fire Institute and why you decided to found it? 
Yeah. Well, the Warren Fire Institute was founded, what, about four years ago now. And the idea, it's a kind of a think tank that's part of its purpose. We're gathering fellows who are supposed to do research and writing and producing of courses. So it's an online reality for the most part. So people join the Institute, they become members, and then they get access to all of our video material, but also to specialized courses in theology, spirituality, practical evangelism, et cetera. So the idea of the Institute is on the basis of the fellows and their work to form lay people in the work of evangelization, because finally they're in the front lines of it. I want to form lay people to evangelize their own families, their own kids, their own workplaces. So that's the point of the Word on Fire Institute, and we do it through the fellows and the courses and articles and books that they produce. And one of your biggest impacts has been the award-winning documentary series Catholicism, which you syndicated, which was nominated for an Emmy. That was a pretty courageous thing to tackle a project of that size. You know where that came from? I'll tell you exactly. It was at a board meeting. This is the early days. We didn't have much of a reach in those days. And a board member said to me, Father, you know, if you're going crazy, dream big. What's your dream project? And I laid out that project. I said, what Kenneth Clark did in the 70s for Western civilization, I'd like to do for Catholicism, that we go all over the world. We'd film the most beautiful places. We would do it at a high level of production value. So they paused and they said, well, how come we can't do that? I said, well, first of all, I need the permission of my bishop. It was Cardinal George at the time, who was a great hero of mine. And I said, then we probably need, I don't know, several million dollars. <laughs> and so they started working at it. They went down and talked to the cardinal. Without me, the board went down and said, could you give him permission to do this? And he said, yes. And then we started fundraising and we scraped the money together. When we got enough for an episode, we'd go and we'd film and all that. And then we back to zero. We started filming, by the way, 2008, and it was in the fall of 2008 that the economy collapsed. And so a lot of our donors, I remember saying, hey, Father, I want to help you, but I can't right now. The stocks are so bad and you know, I'm losing money. So we scraped our way over two years and then got that thing filmed. We did a little bit of that in our couple of movies we made, including Nine Days That Changed the World. And you hope you can pull it all together because you can't start until you're sure you can actually get it done. That's a huge project. It is a huge project. And the people involved in that were marvelous. And one of them was Mike Leonard. I don't know if you remember that name. Mike was with the Today Show for many years. He did kind of human interest stories, feature pieces on Today Show. And I knew him from my parish in Chicago. And he's the one that linked us to a lot of NBC people around the world and so on. But we were sitting, I remember it's for episode one, we're filming in the Holy Land and we are in a pizza restaurant in Jerusalem <laughs> and we're having dinner and he said, you know, the church has been going through such a rough time. This is you now 2008, so we're just a few years after 2002. And he said, I wonder, you know, this could be a tipping point. Maybe we could start moving things back. And so that stayed in my mind. That that's what we wanted to do was present the Catholic Church in its truth, its beauty, in a way that would be evangelically compelling. And we didn't know. When we were making it, we had no idea what the distribution strategy would be. We had no idea if we could get it widely viewed. And it was PBS came through, you know, and then they syndicated it and it went all over the country. Well, it's an amazing achievement. And now you have your newest book, The Great Story of Israel, Election, Freedom, Holiness. And I gather that's the first of a two-part series. 
It is. And that's growing out of this wonderful Word on Fire Bible project. So we've now published two of these. The third one's coming out pretty soon. It's just an exceptionally beautiful, I think, presentation of the Bible. We have the biblical text, but then it's surrounded by commentaries. It's a bit like the glosses from the Middle Ages when they would have the text and then the commentary. But we're drawing from the Church Fathers, from Aquinas, from John Paul II, from Chesterton and Newman and everybody else. And then I've got some commentaries in there too. And then also on the page are beautiful works of art. And so it's just a very holistic approach. And our hope was to draw people that wouldn't normally pick up a Bible and they see small prints and double column pages and lots of footnotes and they say, I'm not going to read that, that this would draw them into the beauty of the Word of God. And the first volume, heck, I think that sold. 300,000 copies. It was just the Gospels. And then we did the rest of the New Testament. And the third one coming out is the first five books of the Old Testament. So my book there that you referred to, it grew out of that project. So as I'm doing all this commentary in the Bible, it grew into really a book-length thing. And that's volume one. I'm looking at roughly half the Old Testament there. And it's all under the rubric of trying to draw people back to the Bible. When you go back and you look in the Middle Ages, there was a lot of effort to use beauty to bring people together, many of whom couldn't read, but they could see the pictures. They could get a feel for the storylines, if you will. Yeah. But see, the church I grew up with, I came of age in the 70s, right? First of all, we dumbed it down. That was a huge mistake. Catholicism is a smart tradition, but we dumbed it down. My generation got butterflies and banners, Catholicism. And it was a disaster pastorally because what happens is kids grow up and they have serious questions and they're getting nothing like serious answers to them. The second thing we did wrong in that period is that we uglified Catholicism. Look at the churches built at that time, the 70s and 80s. They're like these empty Bauhaus modernist structures and had nothing of the charm of the Romanesque or the Gothic or the ancient basilicas. And they became just sort of empty gathering places. Well, a dumbed-down, uglified Catholicism is not compelling to people. And, you know, my generation answered by leaving in droves, you know. So one of the things I've been animated by is a desire to make it beautiful and to make it smart. And I think those two things are appealing to people. They always have been. I have a good friend, Liz Lev, who is a remarkable student of religious art and history. And she says that the Sistine Chapel in Michelangelo was the church's answer to Martin Luther, that the effort to say to people that there is a glory, there's an amazing beauty. And of course, if you visit the Vatican Museum, you're sort of surrounded by it. It's amazing. It's a very good point about Luther, because as you suggest there, he was against what he called the theology of glory, and he wanted purely the theology of the cross. And there's a complex history behind that. But the Catholic Church responded with Michelangelo and with Bernini and with Caravaggio and responded with beauty. You do display the glory of God through artistic beauty. And I think one of the signs, one of the clearest signs of corruption is when we start destroying beautiful things. And we did that at the time of the Reformation. We did it in the ancient iconoclast period. And honestly, we did it in my lifetime. We destroyed a lot of beautiful things. And that's a sign of corruption. Dumbing down Catholicism and uglifying it are signs of corruption. I think that's right. And listen, I think you're one of the people standing firmly for tradition. It's a remarkable thing. And I want to thank you for joining me. I want to wish you a very, very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I want to encourage our listeners to visit your website 
at wordonfire.org where they can find more of your sermons, articles, and books. And I want to thank you personally for joining me on Newt's World. Mr. Speaker, thank you very much. Merry Christmas to you. It was a joy to talk to you today. Thank you to my guest, Bishop Robert Barron. You can get a link to Word on Fire on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.